On this special episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we interview speakers and leadership during the New Jersey Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers annual conference at the Palace at Somerset on April 19th, 2023. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 184 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for April 19th, 2023, recording from the New Jersey Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's annual conference at the Palace at Somerset in New Jersey and from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We would like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape and that the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry, and he is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So, Sue, uh, Lori Rodericks, Tony Lyons, Mm -hmm. and I had an opportunity to attend the conference on April 19th at the Palace at Somerset. You uh, had to stay home, take care of our puppies, Mm -hmm. of course, so I I really missed you, but... uh, uh, we were able to set up a temporary studio there and get a, mm-hmm. a number. The, the problem that we had with the conference, as we do with many conferences, is that uh, it's such a busy conference. It's yeah. uh, one day, and uh, and we got as many interviews as we could. But we did, a, I think, a bang-up job of getting some of the, the great speakers there and to mm-hmm. talk to the state association members. And, yeah, and New Jersey is always great about that, about absolutely. making people available. And they have a they used a, a new venue this time, didn't they? They did, yeah. The, the Palace at Somerset was an uh, incredible, beautiful place. Uh, the food was great. I, of course, always make sure that I partake of it as much as mm-hmm. I can. To, you, have to, uh, you have to be sure to give your opinion and, that's and right, sample it. It's, people, it's kind of a people duty. People feel my opinion is very important, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll tell you, the, the fun night, you would have enjoyed it too. The, the, the night before the conference was trivia night. Mm-hmm. I was on a team with uh, Tony Lyons from Amateur Healthcare Strategies and Lori Rodericks, uh, who was also a speaker at the conference. I did mm-hmm. two uh, speeches at the conference. 
and our dear friend from RFX, Amanda Penrod. Uh, and we made up a great team uh, there. And uh, we were in first place for a while, but unfortunately, uh, we kind of fell off when it got to some of those sports questions. But uh, it was a great night, a lot of fun, and we got to meet a lot of great people there, and t- including a lot of our, our listeners here and mem- many of our attendees of the, uh, the boot camps. Mm-hmm. It was a great conference with some great uh, speakers. Uh, the way they uh, arrange the conference this year is they break it into uh, three different tracks, The what they call the multidisciplinary track for people that are interested in both business or administration and and, uh, and, and clinic. There was a business track and a clinical track. And I actually spoke on the uh, clinical track regarding credentialing and privileges, privileging of healthcare providers. Lori also was on the clinical track talking about pre-op screening, uh, and tips for protecting patients in the ASC. And then I did a second session on the business track for developing meaningful financial benchmarks and dashboards. Uh, there were a lot of great sessions. There was a session on employee handbooks, a uh, session on uh, beginner's guide to quality improvement, uh, neat title for one, a collection quiz show. I didn't have an opportunity to speak to that uh, individual. And uh, there was also conflict for office administrators. I think that's a kind of important topic right now. Mm-hmm. And then we had some pharmacists talking about pharmacy issues, and uh, our friend uh, Deb Comerford, uh, who's a life safety expert, uh, did a session on surviving a life safety survey. We actually interviewed her very quickly here uh, for the session. So, And then uh, there was also a, a session at, uh, toward the end about pitfalls and challenges in high-level disinfection sterilization. And the highlight of all the New Jersey conferences are uh, a session where they talk to the experts. They, they are very... Uh, good about bringing people in from the Department of Health, and they were able to uh, pull some people from DOH and from their lawyers uh, to talk about various issues that are going on. So it was a great conference, and I was very happy to uh, participate in it, do the two sessions myself. And uh, as I said, we were able to get uh, three of the speakers to talk to us, and and I thought we would start with the keynote speaker, whose name was Therese Gopal Robinson, and she did a session called Lost. I thought I would uh, start our uh, our interviews with the keynote speaker, whose name was Therese Gopal Robinson, and she did a session with a great title called Lost, Leading When the Destination is Unclear. Let's listen. So this is John Gailey. I'm here at the New Jersey Annual Conference at the Palace of Somerset in it's April of uh, 2023. And I'm here with the keynote speaker for this year's conference, Therese Gopal uh, Robinson. It's great to meet you. I've, I've never met you. And I unfortunately, I only heard yeah. the very tail end of your, your session. <laughs> but you and I talked a little bit beforehand about what you, uh, what you spoke about. So the title of your session was uh, Lost, Leading When the Destination is Unclear. Yes. I don't know why you picked that title. Why would you think that there might people might be lost in healthcare right now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. sarcasm, yeah, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I figured as much. <laughs> so uh, you, you, you got a, a standing ovation. So obviously, you hit the marks there. So I really appreciate that. So uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So um, again, my name is Therese and I'm a consultant and a keynote speaker. And so I work in healthcare specifically and I, and I work with hospitals, healthcare staffing organizations, and I focus on process improvement, accreditation and change management. Mm-hmm. And within the last year, really what has happened as a result of that is I've, I've, I've really kind of started 
going into leadership development Mm -hmm. and mentoring because, you know, I will go ahead and say almost 100% of the time, if you have an issue with process, you can always tie it back to leadership in some way or another. And and really, I'm realizing more and more that leaders in healthcare just really need so much support and Mm -hmm. development. And so that's really the the services that I offer to healthcare organizations on a whole and, and associations as well. Well, and the ASC industry has gone through so much dramatic change in the last yeah. three years in particular, uh, yeah. not just from COVID. It really isn't. I mean, we, we could blame COVID for everything in our lives right sure. now. Yeah. Um, but I think as we're finding uh, nurses getting, uh, you know, nursing as a profession, a lot of people are retiring now. Uh, we're finding people moving into leadership that don't have even management experience, let yes. alone leadership experience. And I'm sure that's what you're experiencing. So, uh, but you run the gamut, but talk a little bit about leadership leadership development and, you know, the, um, you know, how do you take somebody from the ground, you know, maybe doesn't even have uh, experience in leadership who's been suddenly appointed, which happens in in ASCs all the time. It's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's funny you say that because that's one thing that I identify consistently um, in really any kind of organization is if you're really great as an individual contributor, Mm -hmm. then you know, you tend to be promoted, right? Because right. you're you're excelling in all areas and then you're promoted. But what we what we forget a lot of times is the skills that make you a fantastic individual contributor yeah. don't necessarily align with being a fantastic leader, especially right. if if you're not getting the development and I say nourishment that you need because for example, if you're a recruiter, right, there's a certain skill set. Mm-hmm. That makes you a fantastic recruiter. But if you try to apply those same skills to leading teams and people, yeah. it's just not going to work. Right, and right. so that's one thing that I really, really try to coach organizations into realizing that number one, have you asked, do you want this? Do, do you want this position? Yeah. Right? What is motivating you? Because if it's just the money, then maybe we can find other ways to incentivize you in your current role financially. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you need to get into leadership. So the first thing is ask, do you want leadership and why? Right. Do you want to you want leadership because you want to be the boss? Or do you want leadership because you believe in what's happening and you believe in the people and you want to see people grow? I used to say all the time as a leader, my biggest sign of being a successful leader was when my people grew and left me. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that meant that I poured enough into them that they were able to flourish and grow and do amazing things. And so and sometimes it's not going to be in the same organization. Exactly. And absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And so, you know, when you when you take someone that may have potential, you believe they do first ask, is this mm-hmm. what you want? And if they say yes, then ask why? Because they're obviously always going to say yes. So ask the why. And then from there, if, if you really feel like this person's a good fit, that's when the education begins and the mentoring begins. And it's not just about, you know, being a leader, you have to do A, B, C, D, and E. You know, you have to get a little bit deeper than that because there, there are so many soft skills mm-hmm. in leadership that can really, you know, help you become successful. And a big part of what I do with people is, you know, what are your own hangups? Mm-hmm. Because if you're struggling with certain things as a human, then you're going to struggle as a leader. So what are some of the hangups that you have? Because if you, for example, you know, if you struggle with something like imposter syndrome, then there's a really good chance that you're going to be intimidated by team members who have great ideas, Mm -hmm. right? Because you feel like you don't belong and you don't deserve to be here. And so really when you identify someone, it's really about nourishing them and, and really pouring into them. And leadership development is so huge. And time and time again, when organizations 
take the time and spend the the money to to yeah. create robust development programs for their emerging leaders and their current leaders then I mean, everything just falls into place. Quality, mm-hmm. you know, everything, everything just kind of clicks just like that if you yeah. if you invest that time. Well, and you bring up a very important point is that um, every leader is going to need some nourishment. I love your term, nourishment. Yes. Um, we talked before we started because, uh, you know, our <laughs> podcast is famous for our boot camps. You know, we have yeah. the boot camps yeah. for director of nursing, administrator, and business office manager. Yeah. And and, and we, we push anybody that is in one of our centers uh, to go through that training. Yeah. Even if they've been doing it 20 years, oh, even yeah. if they've been administrated for 20 years, because we want to know that, you know, they have those skills, they develop those skills yep. necessary to, to leadership. So uh, talk about that. You know, are, are, you know, what, I mean, I, I do believe that some people are just born to be a leader, for sure. That, but that doesn't mean that, you know, they you just let them go. Right, right, right. Talent and skill, there are two different things, yeah. right? So you might have the, it might be within you, but you need to develop that and again, mm-hmm. nourish that to, to be, to really take full advantage <laughs> of whatever your gift is. And so, you know, when I think about leadership too, you know, honestly, when I was a leader, I used to always say, I'm a servant leader. Mm-hmm. And that was because, well, it yeah. just it sounded so great to say, and that was like the buzz term yeah. and I'm serving people, I'm here to support you and all that. But you know, through the years and just also investing in my own education in leadership development, the, the thing that I try to push is become the leader that most aligns with your spirit, your personality, and the things that you're comfortable with, mm-hmm. in addition to the fact that one size does not fit all. So I cannot say that I'm a servant leader yeah. because I work with many different types of people. They're motivated differently. They have different personalities. They work differently. And so I believe in flexible leadership. So it's almost like you have the base, you have the skills, you learn that, you develop those things, but then you have to almost bend and mold to who you're serving or who you're dealing with at that time. Because if I'm talking to John as John's leader Mm -hmm. and John is motivated by, you know, excelling in numbers. So my approach with John will be different than say, if I'm speaking to Timothy, who is all about, you know, connection and purpose and why we're here. And so the types of conversations and the way that I would try to motivate John Mm -hmm. and Timothy would be different. And so it's very important that as leaders, we understand, yes, there's the base, there's the basic stuff for sure, but you have to be able to be flexible in leadership and realize that to your point, you are here serving others. That's true, but you have to make sure that you're serving them what they need. Yeah. You, you bring up one of, we, before we, we started recording <laughs> it, my, uh, I, I had mentioned that one of my ongoing things uh, has always been that if you're getting into leadership because you think people are going to report to you, yeah. you got things backwards. Yeah. You're reporting to them. Oh, you yeah. know, my, I, I uh, you know, management by walking around, you know, I have a, you, I think you're an MPH, right? Yes. Yeah, and I'm mm-hmm. an MBA. So mm-hmm. MBA, it's all about management by walking around, MBWA. Yep. <laughs> You know, you walk around, you talk to your staff and, and I, and I, I learned early in my leadership that that management by walking around that talking to people meant that it gave them an opportunity. The question that we should be asking is, are you doing what I, it's not should be, are you doing what I told you to do? It should Mm be, what can I provide you that you don't have that you need in order to carry out your job? Exactly. You know, I, and I always use this analogy with leadership. I, I look at leadership as, okay, you're in the front of the line and there's this like, you know, 
forest in front of you. Yeah. And as a leader, your role is to pave the way. Mm-hmm. So as you're moving forward, you're paving the way, you're cutting down vines, you're, mm. you know, you're pouring cement, you're, yeah. you know, you're doing all these different things. Yeah, luxury. Uh, right. You're making the- it because you're doing that so that the team that's behind you, they have an easier journey. Yeah. Right. So you're going through all the tough things. You are there to create an environment that will promote success and also um, individuality amongst mm-hmm. your team. And again, it goes back to the fact that everybody is different, right? Yeah. But we always still have this base as a leader. And so as a leader, that's what you're doing. You're paving the way and you're cutting out all the debris and you're cleaning things up and, mm-hmm. and all of that in order for your team to come all, come along behind you and have a smoother ride and be successful and not have to pull the weeds and do all the things that you've already done. I want to go back to something you talked about earlier. And that is, um, again, because of in many ways, we've been in crisis mode for three years. Yeah. And in some cases, uh, people have been promoted. You know, the nurse manager leaves, the administrator leaves, and, you know, uh, CMS requires you to have a nurse manager at all times. So, you know, you either shut the door until you find a new nurse manager or um, you you find somebody within the staff. Yeah. Um, and it brings to mind, you know, the, the difference between an interim leader and mm-hmm. the permanent leader mm-hmm. and identifying somebody in your staff. As you said, sometimes you, you know, people are not made to be a manager and they're not made to be a leader. Yeah. So let's talk for a second about the difference between management and leadership, or even that three levels uh, you know, mm-hmm. our, our worker bees, you know, the people that actually do all the real work out there, yeah. the managers and the leaders. And, and cause I'm not sure that people truly understand the differences between those three different levels. Yeah. So I think, you know, managers, you're managing, process, you're managing things, you're managing, you know, you're managing just kind of how are we getting from A to B to C. Like, like in a surgery center would be managing the schedule, making sure people are Exactly, making everybody's on time and uh, everything's on schedule. Exactly. Whereas leading is a whole different thing. It is completely different. I mean, you know, I, I have worked with managers and I've Mm -hmm. worked with leaders and the key difference between the two of them would be that the leaders, I would follow them anywhere yeah, into so anything, <laughs> yeah, into the darkness because I trusted them because, you know, leadership is, that's a huge component of mm-hmm. leadership is building trust amongst your team. They trust each other. They trust themselves, right? but then they trust you. And so they know that, you know, okay, things are tough right now and it's tough everywhere. And gosh, we just went through so much, but the, the, the leaders that got it right were the folks that, were able to keep their people engaged because mm-hmm. of that, you know, really working so hard to build trust amongst each other so that they could lead them really into anything and they were trusted. Yeah. So that to me is a key difference between say managing where you're just about the, the, you know, nuts and bolts of the things. Whereas leading it's, it's really about trust, but it's also the, you know, I love as a leader when I see people that trust themselves. Yeah. I love it. I love to see when people, all of a sudden, the people that I've been mentoring as a leader, and that's the thing, that's part of leadership too. It's mentoring yeah. and it's really pouring into people. And I love seeing where they finally get it mm-hmm. and they build this confidence within themselves and they trust themselves. And, you know, as a leader, you just have so much responsibility to these people and you have to really respect that respect that responsibility that you have because it is something that, um, you know, it's just so important and it really set, mm-hmm. kind of sets the tone for everything around you, good or bad. Well, let's lean into that whole issue of, t- of, of mentoring, which is yes. one of my, I, no, I can tell already, it's one of your favorite topics, yes. one of my favorite oh, topics. Yeah. Because again, uh, you know, people are being pushed into these positions uh, necessarily. I mean, it's not, it's not like we're doing anything 
wrong. It's what we're doing out of necessity to yeah. survive. Mm -hmm. So they're being pushed into leadership positions in ASCs. It's all in healthcare, throughout it's, healthcare. Yeah. But but uh, let's just, <laughs> obviously we're talking about ASCs here. Um, and, you know, what tool, kind of tools can they have? And that was a lot of, of your speech, I know, uh, is the tool. So let's, let's, let's uh, go into that mentoring tool. You know, many places, many people will go into that leadership with almost no support, which means that they have to ask for it. Yep. Um, so how, uh, what, what type of suggestion? Of course, we're, we're both consultants and, yeah. you know, we do this type of thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's not, and that, that would be my recommendation. The money is well spent. Um, but there's other tools you can do. Right. So, you know, it, if you're new to leadership, maybe you were thrust into it for whatever reason, you, you know, I always, it's about ownership. At the mm -hmm. end of the day, it, it rests on your shoulders, right? Because it was a choice that you made. So yes, maybe you were put into that role because of the fact that, you know, we needed a nurse manager or whatever, but at the end of the day, you made the decision, you made the choice. And so you have to accept ownership. And so, yeah. yes, there are organizations and I will always be an advocate for spending the funds to invest in a good leadership development mm -hmm. um, program. Right. But the reality is a lot of organizations can't, won't, whatever. They, they don't. Right. Don't recognize the value that. of it or they, some, right, and exactly. let's face it, sometimes they just don't have the money. They don't have the yeah, money. Exactly. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you made the choice. Yeah. And so you have to accept ownership. And so like with every other thing in your life, you accept the ownership and you develop and you, you invest in some of those tools. And right now online, oh my gosh, you Google leadership principles, leadership yeah. types, you know, how do there's I have a difficult conversation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you name it, it's out there. And yeah. so, you know, I think first off, it, it just really goes with, uh, you have to first determine the type of leader that you want to be. And so mm -hmm. that comes from within, right? So am I, am I more of an introvert or am I more of an extrovert? Am yeah. I good with difficult conversations or am I, you know, and you start to develop your skills in that way by investing in yourself. There, there are a lot of tools online there, I mean, there's so many, you know, management uh, books out there. One yeah. of my favorites is, I think it's called, you know, The, the First 90 Days. Mm -hmm. I love that book. And I always recommend that one because it really, it's kind of like a, just a guide, a step-by-step -step guide of the things that, you know, what are you trying to accomplish as a new leader in the first 30 days, the first 60, and then the first 90 days. And so, but the bottom line is you made the choice to accept this leadership position. And so you have to own, you have to take mm -hmm. ownership of that choice and invest in it the way that you would invest in anything else, your home, your mm -hmm. exercise routine, your family, your spouse, whatever, take this seriously. And I, and I always go back to respect that you're in leadership. Mm -hmm. I didn't say respect me because I'm in leadership. I said, right. respect that you are in leadership because that's a big deal. Yeah. And so you have to respect it, own it and invest in yourself. I think when people get into leadership positions, first of all, they don't always advocate for themselves. Uh, or, you know, to your point, they don't always recognize that they need that, you know, those skills there. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm talking to two audiences right now. The people that are listening that are uh, owners of surgery centers, uh, you just spent a ton of money recruiting somebody perhaps, bringing them in, you've got a heavy investment, if you were to lose them quickly because they're not satisfied or they just feel they can't do it, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And if you have to shut down until you find somebody, that's going to cost you even more yeah. money. Spend the time, yes. spend the money, find the resources to to uh, to dedicate to that. And and they need it. They it's not something it's not something that you just say. Well, they've been doing this for thirty years. They're yeah. going to need this skill uh, now, especially if they're in a new 
location, if they're yeah. in a new specialty area. And then speaking to the actual people that have moved into it, advocate mm -hmm. for yourselves. Get out there and and and, uh, and tell your, your ownership that you need this resource, that the, it'll yep. be money well spent. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, when I was in one organization that I worked, um, I was a new leader. Mm-hmm. And I came in and now I had been a leader for a while and, you know, I had some of the development things, but, you know, we were hire hiring at such a rapid pace yeah. and we were hiring leaders. And what I quickly realized was these people are struggling, right? Yeah. They're, they're very lost. They, you know, the number one as a leader, you're just trying to learn the job, right? And then now there's this whole other component of, oh, wait, I have to lead people and, right. and have sensitive <laughs> conversations. And this one's over here crying and I don't, you know, yeah. all this other stuff. And so, you know, to those folks who hire leaders, and if you don't have some sort of a, you know, leadership program, that doesn't mean you can't start creating something on your own. That's mm -hmm. what I did. I, right. I started creating something on my own. I didn't make this huge, big program or whatever, but I did start to think about, okay, what are the fundamentals? What are the things? Mm -hmm. A, what are our goals in our department? Yeah. B, how do, what, are, what do we need to do to get there? And then C, well, how do we get people there? Right. And that was what helped build my kind of leadership development program. And you know, again, was I the expert? No, not even a little bit. Did yeah. I have to continuously change and tweak to, you know, to really align with the organizational needs? Absolutely. But it was a starting point and it made people, I am telling you, when a leader comes into an organization and the organization is ready for them, yeah, ready for them, it just sets the tone. Yeah, It really does. And so even if it's something like, you're like, oh my God, this is awful you have something to give a brand new leader coming in because you're telling them what you're saying, you're sending the signal. Mm -hmm. And the signal is, we've needed you for so long. We're yeah. happy that you're here. You belong here and we appreciate you and we will invest in you. And so when you show a brand new leader that you're ready for them, even yeah. if it's a little tiny PowerPoint presentation, that's 20 slides, it's a starting point. And what you're going to do is you're now going to have a partner. Yeah. You know, and you're going to have a person who's engaged from the very beginning and they're going to want you to be successful and, and they're going to want your organization to be successful and invest in your organization as well. And to your point about mentoring and developing your own systems. So, of course, we're at the New Jersey Association meeting. Yeah. The state associations throughout the country uh, are are probably should be one of your primary places to look because yeah. you're meeting people that are near you. Uh, you go to these conferences. You might be, you know, you might be somebody new to the leadership position, but probably sitting around the table with you is five other people who um, in some way might be able to provide a mentorship. Maybe it'll be formal. Maybe yeah. it'll be just, hey, do you want to go out for lunch? Um, you know, do you want to yeah. pop over to the surgery center and we'll talk through things or you just talk on the phone every you know month for, for a while. Um, yeah. That's the type of thing that the state associations can really do to benefit um, yeah. your career track. And again, if I'm talking to the governing, the governing body and the, the yeah. owners, pay for that membership, it'll pay you back in, 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 uh, in an incredible way. Yeah. But to your point, though, you have to have some ownership oh, yes. as well, right? Yes, into, your, into your own development. Yeah. Get and, out and, there. Yeah. And it requires a certain level of vulnerability mm -hmm. that many people are afraid to show, right? Yeah. You know, I'm afraid to go to John and say, John, you know, would you, would you, 
would you be my mentor? Yeah. I just, I really need Especially some support. Especially those introverts. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And that requires, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of that term, but managerial courage, mm-hmm. right? And so it's the courage to speak up and, and say things like, John, will, will you be my mentor? Yeah. Or I don't know this, or can you help me? Or can you give yeah. me feedback because I'm not quite sure if I'm getting this right? Yeah. It requires a certain level of vulnerability, but it is so essential because, you know, if you're going to be doing it anyways, right. <laughs> right. And you made the choice. Again, I go back to leadership as a choice. Yeah. No one, no one forced you into it as much as maybe that's the story we're telling ourselves. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you made that decision and you made that you choice accepted it. Yeah. and you yeah. accepted yeah. it. So own it and, and own your, your learning and own your experience as a leader and be vulnerable enough to ask for support. Right. Yeah. I, now, you also talked in your, your session about uh, what types of things leaders should be doing when they're communicating, when they're walking around, when they're doing the, I'm going to use my term, management by walking around, uh-huh. uh, asking questions, making sure that uh, you're, you, you know, you're, you're listening mm-hmm. to your staff. <laughs> listening skills are, 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 are got to be top of the list of skills that you need as a leader. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> I, I'm guilty of it. I know I was I guilty too. of it. You I know. love talking. It's oh, a problem. Oh yeah, I talk. I yeah, I love to hear myself talk. I talk more than I listen a lot of times. But that's yeah. something that I, I I'm working on. But you recognize it, yeah. right? But even as a leader, you know, a lot of times we're doing the walk around and we're asking the questions, but we um, we're not really listening for the answers. We're just yeah. doing it because it's just you know, I'm here, I'm on the floor and I'm walking and I'm walking and I'm talking and I'm asking, but I'm not really actually listening to any of the actual answers. And I don't, you know, like in my speech, I said, you know, do you care or do you care, care? Yeah. Right. Um, And people need you to care, care. Yeah. And so the way that you do that is by carving that time out to actually listen, but it's not just about how are you doing, John? It's, you know, I always ask, how can I help? Or what do you need today? Yeah. Right. What is what 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 do you need from me today? And you will be surprised when you just change the way that you ask that particular question. People will respond in a different way, because if I'm walking around, I say, hey, John, how are you doing? John is going to say what? Yeah. Doing great. Yeah. Right. But if I say, John, how can I help today? What What is it that you need from me today? John yeah. may say, oh my gosh, you know, the copier is empty and the phone is whatever. Mm-hmm. And now there, there's an opportunity for me to give John tangible supports, right, you know, right. support that he can touch and feel and say, wow, you know, I was here, but then my leader helped me get here. Right. So it's, it's, you know, everybody has to accept ownership in this, right? So mm-hmm. John has to accept ownership, me as his leader and so on. But if we all do our part, then you will be surprised just what can happen in, in an environment like that, where you start to feel like a more cohesive team. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're the leader, but you're part of the team. I I love how you're talking about, um, it, it is so true. One of the things that we learn when we try to, uh, to become better listeners is that to stop thinking about what your next question is going to be. Yes. Uh, that's the challenge I have as an interviewer, because one of my jobs is to make sure yes, that I have a question, have a question for you. Yeah. And, and which is why I have a good editor who, you know, will take out yeah. those pauses. It's happened a couple of times. Yeah. Now, yeah. Our listeners don't know this, but a couple of yeah. times I've had to just stop because I was listening yeah. intently. But and then forgot the question I was about yeah. to ask. But yeah. that's so essential. Is is you know forget about what your thoughts are. Listen to your your audience. Listen to your people, mm-hmm. uh, and they're going to help you so much uh, in in getting. And then you're going to build that trust up. Right for sure. And and get in there. Get your hands dirty. Roll up your sleeves yeah. and get in there and and do some of the work because you know yes it's about communication. Yes how yeah. how can I help you? What do you need? But what if John's an introvert? 
what if he's intimidated by leadership? Yeah. Right. And so, but if you get in there, get roll up your sleeves, get in there and do some of the tasks that John yeah. is doing, you might also identify like, well, wait, wait a minute. What, why are we doing this step four times? Yeah. John, can you explain? And now John is in a position of, it feels more powerful where he can say, well, let me educate you. We do it this way yeah. because X, Y, and Z. And now you have an opportunity for dialogue. Cause you can say, well, John, yeah, but gosh, that's taking you 23 extra minutes. I wonder if we did it over this way, if that would eliminate time. And then now you can have this brainstorming organic, you know, session with John that you would have never been able to have had you have not rolled up your sleeves and gotten in there and, and did some of the work. <laughs> they're going to, they're going to respect you so much. When I was running uh, my second surgery center, uh, we would sometimes be open on Saturdays for urgent surgery. We did retina procedures and uh, I couldn't get a secretary. So as the administrator on call, I was the secretary. I'll tell you, uh, first of all, I never want that job. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Never want to do it again. But I, the the receptionist kind of respected me a little bit more after that because oh, yeah. I came back and I said, okay, this is not working yeah. uh, because I couldn't do it. And, yeah. and we, we reinvented it together. Yes. But, but we had a great connection at that point um, because, uh, because I'd actually done what she had done instead of just you know, created that checklist. Exactly. I think that's so important. Another part of this is uh, you and I are both wearing suits right now and I don't know how you are, but I don't wear suits anymore. I I mean, I I start out, (laughs) I start out in the hospitals. I'd be walking around the suits and you know what those nurses were saying? The suits are coming. And you know, so I'm in scrub, you know, when I was uh, my second surgery center, I stopped wearing the suits. I started walking around because then they couldn't, first of all, sometimes they didn't see it coming by the way, but they, they, you know, you're part of that team there. They, they, they knew that you could jump in and you could discharge a patient or, to your point, um, uh, whatever's necessary. So get out of the suit. Um, in I know you're not in the ASC vernacular, but that means that as an administrator, director of nursing, sometimes you're going to have to suit up and go back That's right. uh, into the, the, the clean area, the, you know, right. the restricted area, uh, just to be able to see the people that are always hiding from you yep. um, or are never listened to because they're back there and they're separated from the leadership. Yep. Even, you know, in, well, in all roles that I've had as a leader, um, you know, especially when I was leading compliance. So I, you know, I was over compliance quality mm-hmm. or credentialing and credentialing is a beast. Yeah. Um, That's my next speech, by the way, in about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but I always had a file. Yeah. So even as a director and even, you know, with all the things, I always had one file that I was always working on because, well, it keeps your skill up, but it, yeah. it keeps you very, very close to the rhythm of things and you can quickly see where things are, you know, bottlenecking and and where the challenges are. And, and that really allowed me to go back to my leaders and say, guys, this, this is ridiculous. Like (laughs) how can we expect this when, you know, we're giving them this or, so I always try to always have a file or always have a case that I was working on or something um, to just keep me as closely connected as I possibly could. But to your point, what happens there is that your team trusts you more because listen, we've all been there. We've had bosses that are like, Hey, do this, do that. And we're all looking at that person. Like you have no idea what you are saying (laughs) right now. Take me a month to do something you think I'm going to do in this afternoon. And, but that goes back to the development piece as well too, because I've worked with leaders where, you know, I call them homegrown leaders where they started off kind of like entry level and they work their way up into leadership. 
got, you know, they kind of learned and they kind of was just winging it all the way. And now they're in executive leadership positions and their teams are suffering because that person might be amazing at process. Like they've got the numbers they've got. I mean, they've got that down. But then when it comes to leading teams and understanding just how what they're wanting to do is impacting the people that actually have to do the work, it's a whole different story. And so I think that's also part of leadership development is Yes, you've been promoted. Yes, we're going to develop you. But that does not mean that you're no longer part of this team. You lead right. the team, but you are a player on this team just as much as everyone else. Absolutely. Well said. It sounds like a good way to end. Ah, yes, <laughs> Therese, yes. thank you so much. This has been a pleasure thank interviewing you. Thank you, John. Thanks so much for having me. Next, I had an opportunity to interview John Karwalski. He's a pharmacist, and he did a session entitled, Are You in Control of Your Controls? And we actually uh, were good friends, and we had an opportunity to speak specifically about drug diversion, which we know is a huge issue right now. You and Sue, you and I have been dealing with it uh, uh, on a number of fronts here, and we've talked about it quite a bit during these conferences, but this was Mm -hmm. a, a great discussion with John. So let's listen. So this is John Gailey, and I'm here at the uh, New Jersey Annual Conference in April 2023, and I'm here with my friend John Karwalski. Um, And John, talk a little bit about your company first. It's great to be back with you, John. Um, We talked, I guess, a few years ago at the New York meeting, and, uh, you know, I like really uh, working with you and your team. Just like you, I'm working throughout the country with Consultant Pharmacist Services, um, just celebrated my 20th anniversary starting yeah. JDJ Consulting, and we have a team of great pharmacists. Um, I'm speaking today at the conference on our recent benchmarking uh, that we've completed on narcotic diversion, and I thought we could just chat a little bit about what we've seen over the years and, uh, you know, answer some questions you, that you may see out in the field. It's funny with narcotic diversion, you and I talk a lot about the risks in our centers and how we can uh, better improve things and educate people, and the benchmarking pointed out a lot of areas that we see uh, need and maybe some that are getting better, but some always can be better. Um just this morning, got a call from a facility of mine that is worried about a potential diversion. So it's always uh, present. We are uh, trying our best to help with uh, preventing it and uh, educating people to know when, in fact, it might be existing in our centers. Yeah, and you have a number of our clients, too. You cover, what states do you cover? Pretty much 13 states right now. Okay. Our mid, mid-Atlantic states are our home base, uh, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, New Jer- uh, Delaware, Maryland. We go as far as California, Mississippi, uh, South Carolina, Nevada. And uh, I think people really respect our, our uh, services and our reports that we generate for you know moving them forward in, in best practices. That's right. And uh, so when I speak of diversions, it actually hasn't been any of our mutual clients. But, <laughs> but we've, uh, we've had, and that's... Uh, to be honest with you, that's probably, it's not a matter of if, it's almost a matter of when, uh, unfortunately. I mean, it, you can set good systems up, and uh, but even some of our best places, unfortunately, have had that. So talk about, because I mean, that's the point to be made is that, um, I mean, my experience, it's it's the least, it's the person that you least expected to do a diversion. You and I did talk about how someone could show no signs and no exhibit, no red flags. It's very difficult uh, unless you're doing consistent audits and oversight of this area of of the centers. Uh, I sometimes think it's too complacent with staff because they've all worked together. They're comfortable with one another, Mm -hmm. and therefore the guard is let down. The diversion call this morning was actually what 
I see happen a lot. The OR anesthesia cart was left unattended between cases. The nurse CRNA returned back for her next procedure, and a vial count was incorrect. Yeah. And when you question the CRNA, the box wasn't locked, yeah. and, the, and the cart wasn't locked, and no one was attending the room. Uh, and we, we see this quite frequently, as I know you, you see it in your investigations. Well, it, during the survey, it's probably one of the most common things we have. And a comment will be made, well, somebody's always in the room. Well, that, whoever is taking responsibility for those drugs, that's the person that should be you know, locking it up or, or, or making sure it's being secured. Um, so let's, again, repeat. The uh, anesthesia cart should always be locked whenever... Uh, the anesthesiologist is not in the room. Probably the best tool for that tends to be those, uh, the ones with the push buttons now, I think. Push button combo, yeah. uh, auto locking cart. Really, right. the technology is there. I actually have a few places that have a badge swipe entry into the cart. Yeah. You know, I think uh, we're at a point in the ASC industry where automation needs to really start to show its head. Uh, we don't need Pixis and OmniCell, but we need real-time devices that can manage controlled substances and track uh, usage of controlled substances. As you know, when you go into these ASCs, very few have automation with narcotic control records. It's a paper mm-hmm. system. Yeah. When is the last time a health, health system or a hospital dealt with narcotic papers? Right. It's, it's, I mean, in, in 20 years, we haven't seen it in hospitals in 20 years, but in surgery centers, it is paper, and we need to mm-hmm. take the jump to automation to help us secure. And you know what? It, it, the reports that you can get from these machines can generate red flags and, and areas where you need to investigate. Uh, I think that's my mission lately is, is, to, is to educate people on the benefits of that sy- systems that are out there. What do you think is the most common drugs that are being diverted right now? Uh, injectable narcotics, yeah. um, Dilaudid, fentanyl, uh, C2 narcotics are, are mm-hmm. very uh, physically addictive and therefore someone that is is occasionally begins to use drugs, uh, finds that they need more and more to right. satisfy that that uh, physical addiction. And a lot of times they catch themselves by failure to steal drugs, uh, mm-hmm. putting saline back in a vial. Yeah. Uh, we just saw in one of our uh, emails from Becker's uh, that a nurse was found guilty of transferring fentanyl out of a vial, putting saline in the vial, and thousands of doses were discovered at a center in, in Florida. Um, I found that in my center occurring a few years ago. So I think the injectable narcotics, although Drugs like Percocet and Vicodin are being repackaged and in, in, in other drugs being put in. Um, the blatant stealing of, of, a, of 10 dr- vials is not something because it, it'll just show up on account. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, there's also very sophisticated purchasing uh, methods that people have found to be diverting a, a large quantities of drugs. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the workplace, it's usually an injectable vial. And what, that brings up an interesting question. As part of our quality improvement program, as we're looking at incidents, as we're looking at people that are complaining about pain, what types of things should we be watching for as 
a potential sign that a drug has been uh, diverted in such a way that they're you don't readily recognize, like you said, you know, in, in inserting uh, saline to replace the, what was taken the out. The red flags. Uh, we do a lot of education for our nursing staff and our surgery centers, and our benchmarking this year demonstrated that we more centers are requesting that education, and I think yeah. it is a key to allowing the staff to know what a red flag, you know, from an individual to a facility. Uh, management of, of narcotics. What if patients in the recovery room who were given pain medicine are, are screaming in pain? Mm -hmm. That was discovered by a physician one time who was ordering uh, a narcotic for pain and recovery. His patients, the nurse said, administ were administered. The patient never got the drug. Yeah. We discovered that saline was administered and the nurse was injecting herself with, with the narcotic. So red flags, there's multiple red mm -hmm. flags. Uh, we want to empower our nursing staff and our clinical staff to report anything that is not right in their eyes. Because mm -hmm. the bottom line we have to remember, John, is our patients are coming in for a procedure, wanting to be not have complications, want to have a surgical procedure and go home and recover. How would you feel if they were harmed by bloodborne pathogen by a contaminated needle that, that maybe an employee was using on themselves. So we really take it personally with JDJ as, as getting this education out and empowering our nurses to report to their supervisors or even to me as their consultant mm -hmm. pharmacist any worries they have. I don't want a nurse going home at night worrying okay. about what might be happening in their place. And, and that's where we can really help out. Yeah, you're getting to the heart of one of my ongoing concerns is that there are so many organizations that discourage incident reports being written up or the flips. And, and there, there needs to be a recognition, almost a reward for reporting things so that we can look into it. Even if in the end, it, you know, let's say that you're reporting a patient or a, pa a patient complaining about pain that was unresolved. Uh, even if in the end you determine that this is a patient that, you know, was given valid drugs, uh, that's fine. But by reporting that and then over time seeing multiple cases. You'll see the trends. That you'll see the trends. The but trends, how are we going to have yeah, those trends if yeah, we don't if yeah. we don't report every incident? Um, it is important to document, to report, because they can really show trends that on an individual basis, you might not see anything. Right, right. But when you see the multiples, as you're saying, and now you're you're tracking things by a provider, by a particular nurse, mm -hmm. and this is what automation can do for us. The manager could run a report that shows usage by provider of, of drugs. Mm -hmm. And we had a place up in North Jersey that was using automation. And they called me and said, hey, our four nurses in PAC, you pretty much administer the same amount of pain medicine. One nurse is way up over the, over the standard mm -hmm. norm. And we didn't see that unless we mm -hmm. had that, that data collection. Yeah. Whether it's incident reports, whether it's uh, uh, automation that can generate reports, Hospitals around the country do this, and the pharmacy departments track these types of things. Right. And our ASC industry can really benefit and, and keep our patients safe with this um, ability to, to look at trends. So it gets, again, it gets to the heart of quality improvement of following up on incident reports and not just brushing them off. Uh, and then what you're also talking about is that internal benchmarking where you're comparing, um, you know, the pain, uh, unresolved pain uh, over a period of time, quarter to quarter, month to month, you know, uh, what, whatever time frame you choose. And then making sure that you do look into any trends that are going in the opposite direction from what you expect. 
creating an action plan, doing a quality improvement study if you're a AAAC or, you know, a, a performance improvement project if you're a joint commissioner or one of the others. Those are what surveyors expect you to see uh, or to do. Absolutely. I think uh, when you think about benchmarking, it's a really a continuous loop in in performance improvement. You know, I have a definition that I'm going to be presenting this afternoon, uh, benchmarking a process of learning, adapting, and measuring best practices of an organization to improve performance. It goes and cycles on and on. Our benchmarking recently this past fall was on narcotic diversion. We asked uh, facilities around the country to answer 60 questions mm-hmm. on six areas of, of narcotic uh, control, security, surveillance, documentation, education, resources, and um, we think this type of benchmarking, we've done it three years in a row, this will continue to allow centers to see what other, other centers are doing mm-hmm. and maybe uh, enhance their own systems. Uh, I know the nurse this morning called with that discrepancy or that potential diversion. She was visi- uh, visibly on the phone very upset. Yeah, she yeah. felt like she didn't do her job. Yeah. And that's a shame to put a nursing manager in that position. And the other thing we do, John, is, is our data uh, showed that we're improving on having policies for managers when there is diversion. Right. You want to have a nurse when someone comes to them with a question about maybe somebody diverting to be able to have a, a step-by-step guideline so that they accurately can begin to track and investigate. You can't leave it to inconsistency when a nurse has to track a potential diversion because people can uh, file lawsuits for false act, you know, mm-hmm. claims of, of what you're doing. Uh, we got to be careful. We're going to move toward, towards testing, drug testing, and that's got to go into legal. So we really work hard for our centers to have a policy dealing with their steps they need to take when diversion is identified. So let's talk about what would be a good way to – uh, to monitor this on an ongoing basis. seems to me like uh, a nurse and, and rotating. It shouldn't be the same nurse yeah, all the time, yeah. but you have a, uh, you know, some type of a checklist, for example, that somebody is rounding. And this has to be, I, I got to say, it's got to be a weekly type thing, you know, uh, or even daily if you end up with yeah. a situation where you're really concerned uh, and rounding. So I'm just thinking out loud what sure, types of things sure. we'll be looking for yep. as part of that rounding. And uh, I use a slide uh at our center and looking at a controlled substance from cradle to grave. Mm-hmm. And the stop points along that from when its order is placed mm-hmm. to when it's sent to the wholesaler to when it's delivered to the center mm-hmm. to when it's unpacked to when it's entered into inventory to when it's signed out to an anesthesia provider or administered to a patient to when it's administered to when it's wasted if there's waste. That continuum needs continuous auditing. Now, as you said, things might be weekly. Things might be daily. Right. When you think about witnessing for waste after yeah. a medicine is administered in the OR by anesthesia, what we want our nurses to do when they reconcile that sheet at the end of the day when it re- gets returned, the anesthesia provider just can't throw it into a box and run out the door. Mm-hmm. A nurse must reconcile. They're looking at a few items, and this is the daily audit. Does the count match what was administered and what right. was returned? If there's waste, was a witness present to sign? Mm-hmm. Is there any illegibility or numbers of writing over? That's a daily thing that follows that continuum. Maybe weekly is a nurse is auditing charts, the intraop record versus maybe the count sheet. Did that match? And we find discrepancies there. 
maybe monthly, the nursing administrator will run reports of utilization of drugs. So you see the continuum and the audits points can vary on a time frame, but we don't want to miss any of this. And our benchmarking did show that we're at, and, and when you come to see the talk this afternoon, from 19, 2019 to 2022, all the audits in these areas have all increased by our centers. And that makes me really proud that they understand the urgency just as we understand mm -hmm. the urgency. You and I know that we want to have our centers be doing the best in this arena, and this auditing is is part of that. And it gives them uh, peace of mind when they know mm -hmm. that you know that's going on. The other thing it does is it lets the facility staff know and the providers know that audits are taking place. Right. When you physically go out and monitor, and, and they see you monitoring, mm -hmm. and they call you. And yeah, they don't make this a secret chopper thing. It, it should yeah, be obvious. Yeah, yeah. good point. And, and when you find a discrepancy, immediately interact with the individual who had the discrepancy. That puts them on notice. Good places have good employees. Mm -hmm. Bad places have bad employees. And it's a big part of our jobs, you and I, to enhance that message when we go and visit our facilities. So before we started recording, we were talking about uh, uh, incidents where uh, physicians who might be that second signer on the uh, the drug counts will just at the beginning of the day, just, uh, you know, I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? Yep. Uh, uh, you know, just sign off as though he had been there and witnessed the, the counts and how important it is to make sure that that sort of thing is not occurring, that you are uh, seriously taking that those those taking those counts seriously. And then the people that are signing off on it are, are indeed doing what they're saying they're doing. You know, we did a little data study that showed uh, when the count, when the waste is actually witnessed. Mm -hmm. And we see improvements from 2019 to 2022. Um, we asked, is it done at the end of the procedure or is it done at the end of the day? We don't want to see syringes with partial drugs yeah. left till the end of the day. That went down from 9.2 to 2% in centers that leave it till the end of the day. I yeah. want that to be zero. Right, right. What we did see improved from 45% to 75% is wastage is a occurring at the end of the procedure. So when the doctor shows the nurse in the room, hey, I got one ml of fentanyl, and it's in the RX destroyer, wasted, and the empty syringe is in the sharps, that nurse is the one that's going to sign it at that moment or in that time frame. Right, right. The other thing automation would do is we could track when the, when the waste was actually signed. And one of my centers found that one CRNA had a four-hour delay on when they were getting their co-signature for wasting on their automated device. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, And the technology gave that center that information. Yeah, right. And, and now we have a situation where syringes were maybe left unattended. Yeah, right. Now a nurse is signing for something that was a syringe, maybe it was four hours. How do we know? Nurses get worried about their signing their name. How, are they responsible to say it is fentanyl in there or diluted? Yeah. It's basically saying that you saw one ML of a substance wasted. Right. So you see you and I, what we see together, right? Yeah. Very common. Well, I had another one of my pet peeves, I, I, and it happens 
I swear it must be like one out of every four centers that I go into. You go and look at the big waste bin in the operating room, and there is a syringe half filled with, with usually it's propofol, propofol, but there'll be other things. Yeah. And, yeah. and I guess that's another one of my concerns is I know propofol is not a controlled substance. It can be harmful. And it can be very harmful. And that's the one where I'm finding centers, are because it's not a controlled substance, they don't treat it yeah. as dangerously as a dangerous substance. And I see it left open, yeah. you know, on the yeah. counter. I see the yeah. syringes with it half filled. Very lax in yeah. handling that medication because it's not deemed by the DEA as a controlled substance, but it is abusable right. by, uh, by people, and people have been harmed by that. Uh, I did a newsletter. I was so frustrated with um, non-compliance of the wasting of drugs and the sharps because I see it in four out of five centers yeah, yeah. that I, mo- I did a newsletter last month, and it was called Squirt It Out Before You Throw It Out. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> and I've had managers post it around their centers. Yeah. That little, I'll send it over to you. I was going to say, that Squirt sounds like a good sign. Post, I'll yeah, tell you what, send it over to me and yeah. we'll link it in our, uh, oh, our show notes yeah, here. It, so it that really was a big hit. It. it was a big hit because yeah. everybody knows it's not what to do right. and we still see it happening. So John, let's talk about uh, security and ongoing surveillance activities. And again, uh, John, our benchmarking has demonstrated an enhanced level of surveillance at ASCs that we cover uh, in 2019, for instance, even facility entrance front door mm-hmm. surveillance went from 35 to 50%. We'd like to see surveillance being used more in the med room. Are um, you talking about like video surveillance? Video surveillance, yeah. yeah, yeah. We're yeah. talking video surveillance, particularly with this question for our centers. When we open new centers now, we, we recommend in the med room surveillance at the mm-hmm. narcotic cabinet. Yeah. We recommend in a med room a access panel that's badge swiped, not mm-hmm. just a push button. We also recommend that med room door has an auto close lever so it doesn't remain open. Right. Uh, but surveillance has improved in our centers and I think that gives centers, we caught a diverter, a nursing supervisor, placing uh, Delauded in her pocket yeah. and, and and later bringing it back with something else in there. And it was found on video surveillance because we had surveillance at the cabinet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it protects centers and, and the technology is not that cheap. Right. It's right. Not, not that, that expensive, expensive right, right now. And uh, that's an area that I, I have felt is, um, is a key component to minimizing uh, the diversion risks. And again, physical uh, security, making sure you've got uh, good badge systems, that you're updating those badges on a regular basis. When somebody leaves, make sure you take them out of the system. Uh, I agree. Uh, you know, as much as possible, be moving away from the old keys. First of all, how many times have the, the keys. keys actually get put on a hook and yeah, anybody can access it? Or left uh, in the cabinet door. Uh, yeah, right. I got pictures yeah. of that too, right? Yeah. Yeah. The badge systems are not, the prices are dropping. They're yeah. becoming much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and again, think about what could happen if you had a, uh, an actual diversion. Yeah. Traceability of entry by the badge is a great tool for managers mm-hmm. to identify. When we have a diversion call, we want to narrow the window down of when we were knowledgeable of it not being a problem to when the count was wrong. Right now, the center this morning has a two-hour window that they have to follow. It's mm-hmm. not like a two-day or a one-day, 24-hour access. So minimizing that time frame of a potential diversion, and if you had surveillance, watching a tape of that mm-hmm. time frame that you knew it might have happened, gives a, a tools that we never had before. 
Right. Well, and you bring up a, a, another important point here is that what do you do as soon as you uh, identify a possible diversion or you know a diversion has occurred? So one thing is obviously contact your uh, your uh, your pharmacy consultant if you're working like with a firm like ours with regular consulting who's going to be uh, right. I'm sorry, regulatory uh, compliance oversight. You're going to want to consult with them to make sure the investigation, the incident report's done. What else? What should be a component of that? Yeah. And, and again, um, pull out their policy. Yep. Because we want to make sure that they stepwise do everything accurately right. when diversion is suspected. Uh, document, 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 whatever anybody said to you, whatever, mm-hmm. whoever you interviewed, time stamp it. So historical information is important. This morning's call was to me, uh, and that was wonderful. We can't delay in calling the pharmacist because right. we can help moving you in a direction that won't cause more maybe diversion. Uh, it could be as little as, you know, lock the place down until we get mm-hmm. everybody's name and number or, uh, you know, sequester what is whatever we're talking about. Maybe we need to send a syringe for testing. But, um, yeah, follow your policy. If you don't have a policy, call us at JDJ Consulting. We can help with policy mm-hmm. development. We really think it's the tool that managers need to protect them and their patients in the surgery center. And from a surveyor standpoint, pharmacy is becoming a big issue now. I mean, we're doing a lot of citations. And keep in mind uh, that these could be immediate jeopardy. As a matter of fact, the diversion that is witnessed or is observed during a, or, or an unresolved uh, discrepancy could be something that would escalate immediately to an immediate jeopardy situation, in which case you'll have to shut down until you're able to resolve that. Um, and likewise, as you said, if you observe one, uh, or suspect one, you immediately take actions, interview people individually, not together as a group, so that you can get their different stories. And with a, with a, with a witness, because mm-hmm. uh, that can lead to inconsistent right. comments. It's always three sides to the story, as we know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And again, like we, I, I, I cannot emphasize enough, you and I are, are good friends. It is extremely important, even if your state doesn't require you to have a pharmacy consultant. And I'm not just trying to sell your services. I mean, there are so many services that a, a pharmacy consultant yeah. could give you uh, to, to help resolve so many of those uh, problems that you'll run into. We're seeing uh, some increases in uh, requirements by certain states. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you realize in South Carolina, physician practices require a quarterly pharmacy consultant visit. How about that? Yeah. A physician practice, because they're not regulated. Yeah. They have samples. They've been caught uh, fil- you know, writing prescriptions for you know, pill mills. Yeah. And South Carolina mandates that a application with a pharmacist name on it, licensed in the state, performs quarterly visits. And we just yeah. started with 70 facilities in South Carolina offices. Yeah. And yeah. our pharmacists go in. It's a short visit, but mm-hmm. we're auditing charts. Yeah. We're auditing samples. The thing, you know, the thing we see, John, is nurses want to learn. They just need the guidance. Yeah. And we're already creating educational programs for mm-hmm. nurses. Somebody was wanting to give IM Rosefin for uh, in a office practice and they really were inconsistent on reconstituting the drug even. So we scripted that information for them. Uh, sample uh, tracks. So I would like to see more states uh, adopt these you know, oversights and who better than a pharmacist or someone like yourself with a company that you've worked with for years to, right. to help staff perform the best they can. Right. As always, John, it's great talking to you again, and uh, we'll have you back again, I'm sure, at uh, another uh, uh, next opportunity, great. but I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, John, and great to see you, and good luck with everything, and I uh, hope you uh, continue to enjoy the uh, program today. Thanks.
It's been a long day, and the surveyor's just left, and you are exhausted. And looking at the list of items that you have to address, you wonder, how can I deal with this and still take care of my patients? More importantly, you wonder, how can I ever keep up with all the regulations, standards, and accreditation requirements? How can I always be prepared for a survey and reduce my stress levels? Well, that's what Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies does, day in, day out. We become your outsourced regulatory and accreditation resource. We can maintain your policy manual, develop your education programs, help out with fire and disaster drills, do your risk assessments, oversee your quality improvement activities, help run your quality improvement meetings and governing body meetings, and we can even prepare your monthly or quarterly financial statements and help you figure out where you are financially. We are a retainer-based service. We don't take ownership. We don't charge based on your revenue. We have one fixed monthly fee, and we can tailor your services to your exact needs. So whether you're looking for help getting over a survey, preparing for a survey, or looking for a long-term relationship to assist you with your ongoing regulatory and or financial needs, please give us a call at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ahstrategies.com. That is info at ah-strategies.com or visit our website at ah-strategies.com. Next, I had an opportunity very briefly to interview Deb Comerford. Uh, unfortunately, I had to catch Deb just before Sue. She uh, she went on, so she I, had like ten minutes. You did the interview. I could tell when I was editing it. It sounds like the two of you ran a mile to get to the room. <laughs> we did. We were exhausted. <laughs> like, okay, and you're breathing hard, and so. But I think it, it was a good interview, though. Well, it, well, the sure. other thing we decided to do is okay. Let's just boil it down to like top three <laughs> items. I think so. Uh, let's listen to Deb as she talks about surviving a life safety survey. So I'm at the uh, New Jersey Association's uh, annual conference at the Palace of Somerset. It's uh, April 2023. I pulled my dear friend, uh, Deb Comerford, minutes before she goes on to speak about life safety. You and I go way back, of course, and uh, you and I have consulted a number of times together. You're a surveyor at HHC. You're actually, I think, the only surveyor at HHC that is both a health surveyor and a life safety surveyor. And since our time is limited, Deb, first of all, introduce yourself quickly, and then we're going to say, like, what are the top three things that, are, that you're finding, like something that yes. uh, people can grab onto that they need to do right away. Sure. Hi there. My name's Debbie Comerford, and I'm a nurse by uh, training with a long career in the operating room and ASC development. And I've kind of uh, moved over into the life safety field in about the last five years when they adopted the 2012 Life, life safety, safety Code, and everybody in the ASC business got their got a rude awakening as to life safety because before that, as a AAAHC Medicare surveyor, a health surveyor, we were doing it ourselves. Yeah. We didn't have the dedicated facility people coming out. Now, Yeah, and I would argue that we were terrible at it <laughs> as, well, as health We were surveyors. terrible at it, but the facilities loved us because we were not finding, finding the things yeah. that are getting found now. So just in a few minutes, we're going to talk about the biggest findings or the th- maybe the three things you can do when you go when you f- turn off the radio from listening radio listen to me <laughs> <laughs> that you could do in your center to be better prepared for a life safety survey keeping in mind life safety is a medicare survey it's unannounced right. so you don't have a date you don't know when they're coming so you need to be ready just for as for any survey at 
all times. And it could be, even if you're deemed status, uh, state can show up at any time. Yes. Even AAAC can show up at any time. Yes, but all Medicare surveys of every type are unannounced. Right. And your best uh, offense is a defense or vice versa, which, whatever they say. Yeah. So number one, you want to be ready. So if you're not going to be in the building, somebody in command, second in command knows where those books are, right. knows where the logs are, knows where the keys are, the keys to the medical gas room, to the mechanical room. Surveyors often come into a facility and are stumbling around for an hour trying to yeah. get just the basics ready. Have a ladder, you know, know where the ladder is. Make sure you have a ladder available. So if you have your documents, you have your keys, you have your ladder, and in your mind you always know where you're going to place the surveyor in your facility and you're not trying to scramble around. And so giving them, and giving them a good space to work giving them the internet access. Just right. making the first 15 minutes, you, they'll be very impressed and you'll be off to a great start. So that's my first tip. The most common finding in a life safety survey, as we just went for life safety retraining a couple of weeks ago from AAAHC in Tampa, mm -hmm. the most common finding, and I believe it was in 35% of life safety surveys, were penetrations through the mm -hmm. firewall. And penetrations are uh, holes in your barrier, in your separation. You need a one-hour separation mm -hmm. between your surgery center and any other occupancy. And or examples are your medical gas room, if it's a rated room, that can't have any holes in that room. And so about 35% of the time, the surveyors go up on the ladder, pop the ceiling tiles, and discover penetrations, either a small one for a wire or a cable, or a large one, you know, could yeah. be this size, could be huge. So the, once a year, you could have somebody make sure that your firewall is intact. And I would argue that it should be something on one of your regular checklists, maybe a quarterly checklist. Yes. I agree with you, at least annually, at but least probably annually. more frequently. And again, Deb, right? This is like one of the easiest things to fix. Yes. And one of the easiest things for a surveyor to cite. Right. Easy to cite and easy to fix. Uh, just be sure when you do repair those little penetrations, you're using the right product. Right. Often we see the orange spray foam that comes from Home Depot that's in a can. Yeah. And that is not acceptable. The orange spray foam that expands out and fills up the holes because that's very flammable. Mm -hmm. So that's not allowed in a, a separation wall. You have to use the correct product that is rated for a fire barrier. Right. And that's more of a cement. And often it's a red color. Right, right. A dark red color. And you should have the IFU for that That's the, to prove to the yes. surveyor that you have the correct product. Yes, and the correct way to do a firewall repair is it's called a system, which is really the caulk itself is the fire system, and then you have the documentation to show your surveyors. Some states require that backup mm -hmm. in addition to just the penetration repair that you say you're going to do. Sure. So penetrations are um, number one finding. There are a lot of issues with your fire drills, mm -hmm. and a problem in centers <clears throat> is activating the alarm, yeah. sending the signal transmission through. That's a that's a big challenge in a multi-tenant building. Yeah, and and it has to be done quarterly. And it has to be done quarterly yeah. with every fire drill. And if you're in a multi-tenant building, you may coordinate your fire drills with when they send the signal transmission to verify the signal. You could coordinate it with the building and hopefully get something. Uh, ideally, you coordinate it with your building manager and they help you and, mm. and sound the alarm. My other advice is anytime you hear the alarm, do a fire drill in yeah. your center and then obtain the backup 
you know, documentation of the alarm going through. And show the scenario, write down what occurred. And that should be done for every drill, too. It's just not, you don't just say fire and then everybody leave. Like we did when we were in high school, right? <laughs> right. You hear the bell and everybody <laughs> walks out in line. No, yeah. they need to be scenario-based and varying times of the day is another right. big finding. Is I know some of the centers have, are lucky enough to have some monthly time, like 7 a.m. on the mm -hmm. first Wednesday. Well, that isn't ideal for fire drills because they are supposed to be varied at the different times yeah. of the day to capture all the different staff that might come in at 10 or maybe comes in in the afternoon. So you can't do all of your drills at 7 a.m. or at the same time. And they should be unannounced. The yes. staff should not know that you're about to have a fire drill. I, I One of our centers actually sent an email out to everybody saying, here's the schedule for the next year of the fire <laughs> drills. I said, no, you can't do yeah, that. No, they have to be unannounced. So that's a, that's a difficult ch a challenge with the fire drills. Uh, a hot topic out there is electrical systems, mm -hmm. but that I don't yeah. think we really have enough time to get no. into that. And Other than to point out how important it is. So, yeah. Yes. On. And to identify what type of system you have in your facility, especially in New York these days, mm -hmm. they're asking the first question, what type essential electrical system do you have? Do you have a type one, a type two or a type three? Yeah. So that's a big topic to know and to just know what you have in your facility. Mm -hmm. And you can tell by the circuitry that you have. If you have three branches off your uh, electrical system, then you're a type one. If you only have two branches off of your emergency system, you're a type two. And anything that isn't one of those is a type three. Type three automatically. Yeah. yeah. And it all confusing. depends upon the type of anesthesia that you're providing to your patients yes. to what you're yes. actually going to require. But you're right. And and I think, uh, so here's a very important point I'm sure you're going to agree, is that I don't care whether you've been in business for 20 years and nobody has ever caught it before. The surveyors are a yes. lot smarter, yes. a lot better trained to yes. to find these things now. Yes. They're coming in to facilities that have been exist in existence for 15 years. Yeah with a type two essential electrical system, that's your backup power. And meanwhile, they've been given general anesthesia and right. they really should have a type one because if you have a failure of power, your patient could die on the right. OR table if you lose electricity. And that's the most strict type of system. And you want to be sure that you have that. And you may get cited for that and have right. to do some electrical work. And uh, most of those in those, those situations, we're walking into a number of new centers that we have that are running into this particular problem. And what we have to do is time-limited waiver. That's a whole separate topic there, but yes. it's a big process with HCCC, with a actually any any accrediting organization or even the state yeah. uh, to go through it. But know that that's a, uh, an option. But it's not an easy option. There's a lot no. that you have to do to fill out that time-limited waiver. you got to follow through on it. And, uh, of course, anytime you're doing electrical work, it is very expensive. Very expensive. And uh, New York specifically is looking a lot at that this year. Right. So... Deb, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you. We'll probably yeah. grab you in uh, in another state uh, in a, for a longer conference or a, long, a longer discussion. But Absolutely. I appreciate your top oh, three suggestions. I could talk for hours on life safety. I, I'm sure you could. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you for having Thanks me. Thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. And uh, next, we interviewed Bonnie Lavoie, who is the conference chair. Bonnie and I go way back. She has been uh, asking me to speak at these state conferences for many years, and we've had a great time talking. I think New Jersey probably is the state, in addition to New York, where we've done the most uh, special episodes as a result of our close relationships. So let's listen to Bonnie as we talk about the preparation for the conference and upcoming conferences. 
So again, this is John Gale at the New Jersey Annual Conference in uh, the Palace at Somerset, and I'm here with Bonnie Lavoie. Bonnie, and you and I go way back. You, way back. I've interviewed you a number yes. of times over the yes. years. You're the, the program chair. First of all, let me point out that the facility here is gorgeous. We're at the Palace at Somerset, and yes. uh, Palace really um, is probably the right term. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Well, this year, um, we wanted to change it up. We wanted to refresh it, so we changed things quite a bit. Uh, we changed the location. We changed the, the month. We changed yeah. the way we did things. Before we had uh, different tracks. We had novice and then we had expert. Right. This year we have clinical business and multi um, hybrid, yeah. multidisciplinary. And we want to just refresh it a little bit. So this, this place lended very well to it. Well, I think one of the things that makes your organization very strong and, and differentiates you really from some of the other state associations is the frequency of your conferences. And as program chair, you you organize all of those, correct? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, we actually have two different ones. So we have a program. The quarterly meetings are done by a program committee. Okay. And they are, they are supposed to not take as much speakers as, like I do. The, the yeah. event, this event, this is the annual. The annual this yeah. is the big one. And then we have two or three others during the year with, with other educational events. And they're like more like a half a day. So... We kind of work together and we do always choose our speakers from our vendors, which yeah. is a nice thing because, well, first of all, that's who we want to promote. And also yeah. they're great speakers yeah. and we want to use them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and you've got great speakers. I'm going to interview as many as I can while I'm here. Including you. Including, right. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> Thank you for you. speaking twice. You are one of the most uh, oh. desired speakers. And, oh. and when you're on our uh, roster, everyone's very happy. Well, and, and I really enjoy, I think that's the important thing. We were just talking with uh, Meg about the benefits of membership, yeah. but let's now talk about these meetings because um, after COVID, of course, we're seeing drops. Now, I don't think you're experiencing the same drop in New Jersey as we're seeing in other states. I know it has dropped, but um, that in-person contact, that ability to sit down with somebody over a meal is so important. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things I notice is I, I've been around a long time. We all, we both yeah, have. Yeah. And we, we're getting this influx of young, new administrators. Yeah. And so sometimes the things that we think are not important are actually very important to the new group coming in. Yeah. Today, you talked about credentialing. A lot of that stuff I knew, but I always learned something different. But the people I was sitting with, it was all new to them. Oh, wow. So you have to keep you have to keep it going. You have to keep yeah. the wheels turning because there's always new people coming in. So these events and, and the fact that you have mentors sitting with new yeah. new people is really incredible. I got to talk with someone about credentialing and she was picking my brain and I was like, this is what it's about. Absolutely. This is why we and, do it. And we, as I mentioned uh, earlier, another interview uh, with Meg, um, I had spoken to uh, Therese who was your keynote, did a wonderful keynote, yes. a great interview that we did. But, you know, leadership now uh, and leadership training and mentoring has become such an important part of of our, our development of our leaders in our organizations because there's so much turnover now. Uh, a lot of the older nurses are, I'm sorry, more seasoned nurses yes. <laughs> are, yes. are moving out of their positions, rightfully so. You know, yeah. it's time to, not everybody can work until they're 90 years old. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, time to retire. And, and then we're getting younger people that just don't have the experience. And and of course, some people have been really pushed through school during the COVID years. Right. You know, we're right. going to be suffering from from that afterwards. Yeah. So these types of things are absolutely critical. Um, and of course, what's nice about having more frequent meetings too is you might be able to get more staff out yes. than you generally. Maybe that won't be the same staff at each of the quarterly meetings, yes. but more yes. more uh, more individuals can be um, can be yeah. sent to these conferences. Well, as I said in my in my welcome speech here at the beginning of the day, I mentioned that it's. Educational. That's yeah. one of our, our great goals here is to, to provide the education. For me, at, at this experience level, 
It's the networking. It's yeah. the contacts. It's exactly what Meg said about if you want to further your career, um, you need to know people. You need yeah. to know who to talk to. You need to know where to go. And this is where you get it. Right. It's at a friendly basis. There's no pressure. Uh, last night we had trivia night. Yeah. One of the best things we've ever done. We were sitting in the shuttles back and forth to the hotel, laughing, talking, vendors meeting with other people. And they people went out afterwards as yeah. friends. And I think for the vendors, that's a great way for them to make the connections. And it's for us to learn about their products in a, in a little very unpressured way yeah. so it's very good there's a lot more interaction yeah, between very the much. vendors and the members very here much. I, I, we uh, participated our team came in fourth we were in the lead at one point but uh, yeah it was fun we got it third, was fun. So well, one of the team members was actually the sponsor so <laughs> we're just saying that we threw it because we didn't want her to win but anyway but it's a lot of fun and i think that's what i find there's a lot of laughing going on here there's a lot of uh, camaraderie and yes uh, we need that right now yes what's next what's the next conference um well, as soon as we're done here, in, I told everyone, take a deep breath, two weeks, let's sit back, um, let's summarize things, what, what was good, what was bad. We'll probably send a survey out to everyone and ask them, what was, do they like the place? Did, yep. What do they not like about the place? You know, maybe we want to change the date. Maybe it's not a, a Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe it's a Monday, Tuesday. Yeah. So we are, we're always trying to accommodate to get, uh, get more people. This year we had a particularly tough time, more so than ever because of the staffing problem yeah. that everyone's experiencing. And so a lot of people said, let me see what the days looks like. We had 12 more people show up today because they were able to come because the staffing was okay. Oh, good. But it's, it's really, that is a, probably the most common reason people did not show up is for lack, lack is, of staffing. And, and some Sometimes at the last minute, they're not yes. able to make it. Right. That's interesting. You bring right. up an interesting point. Maybe this is a good lesson for other state association people is that uh, these hard cutoffs, you just can't do anymore. You know, no. in other words, accept people on the day of, and if you have yep. to pay some extra money for that or build extra yes. uh, in, in for the food. There, there's been plenty of food here. Is, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been yeah. trying to take care of the food problem, you know, of having too much <laughs> yeah. food. but Yeah. And I just want to say, John, you've been you, you've been my mentor for quite oh, some time. You. I mean, when I was going for my, um, not my cask. CNR, the cask, I took your course. I'm not, it's not a plug for you, but it is actually, <laughs> is I, if I did not take that course, I don't know that I would have passed. Oh, so you. I encourage everyone to come here and reach out. And I said, when you see, speaker that you feel comfortable with, reach out to them, see yeah. what they've got going, go to their courses, go to their, um, whatever they're offering, because it will help you in your career also, just and, as Meg said. And I know full well that I'm going to get a ton of emails. I think that's actually why my, yeah, my uh, cell bet. phone is going off right now. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, do that. Now, I, I always warn people beforehand, it takes me sometimes weeks to respond to all the emails because of the number of requests yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the speakers that you have here, they are some of the top speakers in the country. They really uh, are. Right now. They're and, amazing. And, uh, They're and, amazing. And, and, One of the things, when I was elected, and we do have board elections, I was elected 14 years ago. I've been on this board. I've been elected <laughs> numerous times, and I've <laughs> never left. And uh, I've always found it so educational, and, and for all the reasons I said, the contact, the career development, things like that. But- it was my idea to do this. And everyone mm -hmm. said, no, 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 don't do it. It's going to be too hard. Literally, we put this uh, a conference together 14 years ago. We made $5,000. Yeah. And we were excited. We're like, yay, this is good. And it has come so far. Yeah. It's just come so far. And we depend on this as our major fundraiser. This, this, um, The finance department out of this, what comes out of this, is what we use for our lobbyists yeah. and what we use to promote our legislative uh, concerns and and how we, we work out down in Trenton. Because we do need that. You have to have a PAC. Right. Right, and right. We need the we need the money to go forward. So this this provides a very big boost for us to do what need, needs to be on a New Jersey for our ASE industry. And talk a little bit because you you also work a little bit with the vendors here to, yes. to, and and the space. So uh, it's nice space. We yeah. uh, we have a booth here as well as what what you have fifty. Yeah. Uh, what's the attendance 50, here? We have. 
uh, 162 attendees, and mm-hmm. we have 50, oh, I think 54 vendors at this point. Yeah. And, and listen, Jersey's a small state, right. and that's tremendous. I mean, I've been yeah. to bigger states where they don't have that many people. So we are very happy. The house is packed with the vendors, with everybody. There's yeah. there's a quite a, a crowd, and hopefully the vendors get some business out of it. And it's good vendor it. experience. Most definitely a very yeah. good vendor yeah. experience. And it's not just, I, I never feel, um, you know, I, I feel like when we're going to the national conferences that there's such high pressure there. Yeah. Uh, here it's a little bit more laid back with the vendors. And, uh, yeah, we're a small uh, state, you know, yeah. and we, we all know each other. So it's right. kind of nice to just... Well, it's actually fun because uh, before yeah. the conference started, uh, the vendors had a good half hour to talk yeah. to each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're all friends because we've yeah. known each other for a long time. Now, I went to every every single booth, all 54 of them. I took everyone's picture. It'll be on our website. Yeah. Um, I also thanked everyone for being here. And I uh, there were new members and new vendor members that, you know, I shook their hand and said, please make sure you come back. We appreciate yeah. you. You are our backbone because they, re- they really are. They're the right. backbone of the organization. Do you think you're coming back to the site again? Is I'm it- gonna. I liked it. Yeah, I liked it. I'll see what everyone else thought. There's a couple things we could do a little bit better. We already know. Right. So yeah, we'll see what happens. I, I don't know. What do you think? Did you think? I like it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's uh, very convenient to me. We were in the yeah. city beforehand. We we're actually in Staten Island before we came down. It was like 30 minute drive. It was yeah. very quick. Yeah. I don't know. I, I know the issue. Even when we have things in New York, is yeah. you know, yeah. you, you have to find a site where you can accommodate a large group, and sometimes yeah. that means it's in a p- place that's too yeah. far. From yeah. a, from everybody yeah. else in the state, but uh, I mean, I think that's one I really enjoy about New Jersey too is that you ask these questions a lot. You take the very serious yes. responses you're getting both from the vendors, but from the people that are attending yes. it. Yes. And we probably should mention that you that you uh, also get AEUs. And I was uh, just going to mention that you'll yep. be speaking to Corey about that. Who was? And, and let me tell you, it is not easy to get AEUs yeah. or, and CEUs. So AEUs are not so bad, but CEUs are very difficult. And I was promised by, um, like, even. I think it's the uh, nurse association or whatever they, that they would work with us. It's still very difficult. It takes yeah. a lot of time. So I've, I'm thanking Corey very much for that because she did that all on her own. It's a lot of work. Yeah, and just for our listeners yeah. too, we are actually going to start introducing uh, uh, CEUs also for some of our boot camps. Yeah, yeah. But it's an expensive process. It's a time-consuming process. Time-consuming, so, for sure. But it's well worth it. Now, what are the requirements uh, for our listeners in New Jersey for uh, CEUs for nurses? The CEUs, well, there's a whole process. And yeah. Corey, you can go into it a little bit more no, detail. No, I mean, for what are the requirements as a nurse? maintain your, your I license. I think it's, is it 21 or 22? I can't remember. There's, I can't remember. I think it's maybe 21 or 22 CEUs every time. And I, re- and I was actually audited license. one year. Yeah. They did ask. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've run through all my files. I was getting yeah. them. So I would encourage everyone keep track of those CEUs because they may just ask you one day. Right. So good point. But, but again, yeah. uh, because you have frequent meetings, you have the ability to yes. get uh, yeah. uh, quite a bit, a bit of those CEUs yeah. Yeah. from here. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Bonnie, it's always a pleasure talking to yes. you and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll be speaking again pretty soon. I hope so. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you. And our last interview was with Meg Stigliano and Meg is the president of the New Jersey Association. We had an opportunity to talk about what's going on in this association right now and uh, what the benefits of being a member of the association. It was kind of an interesting discussion. You know, um, associations are evolving now, Sue, mm-hmm. as we well know, and having to make changes and, of course, much more demands on these organizations than we've had in the past. So this was a great interview. Let's listen now. So this is uh, John Gailey. I'm here at the New Jersey Association's annual conference at the Palace at Somerset, and it's uh, April of 2023, and I'm here with Meg Stegliano. And Meg, uh, you are the president of the State Association, so uh, thank you so much for taking some time. Tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Hi, John. So um, I've been a nurse for over 25 years and I started in the ASC industry over 20 years ago. Um, I've worked as a director of nursing, an administrator, a consultant, and my current position is uh, vice president of business development for RWJ Barnabas Health, who has over 30 surgery centers in the state of New Jersey. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, and, and uh, now how long is your, your sentence, I mean your term uh, of office? <laughs> Three years. <laughs> Three years. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I still remember speaking to one of your prior president. So I said, what do you enjoy about, uh, about, um, you know, being, uh, what are you looking forward to as being the president of the organization? And he says, I'm looking forward to being the immediate past president of the organization. I thought that's a good way to start. Um, so uh, we thought we would talk a little bit about the organization. You know, you've got a, a New Jersey, you know, I get around, I see a lot of state associations. Obviously, you're one of the strongest state associations around. You have very consistent programming. So I want you to talk a little bit about the, the benefits of membership and uh, how you become a member and things like that. So let's start with, you know, why, why should somebody join the New Jersey Association. So the New Jersey Association is the official trade organization representing the New Jersey State Ambulatory Surgery Centers. And as a member, there's lots of benefits for you. So the first one is that we have quarterly membership meetings, which are half day education events where you can learn about the current regulations, what's going on in the industry. We have lots of speakers. And then we also have uh, vendors that come and present so you can network with the vendors, network with other centers. In in addition to that, we do an annual infection control program, um, which counts towards the annual training that centers need to keep for New Jersey Department of Health uh, for your on-site infection preventionist. We also do this annual event each year. Mm -hmm. And then we also do um, some benchmarking studies, some other activities throughout the year for the centers. Now, if you're a member of ASCA, like the ASC Association, should you be a member of the state association also? Absolutely. New Jersey particularly um, is very um, intensive in the regulations mm -hmm. and does things very differently. And so we have a really close relationship with the Department of Health. There's usually someone from the Department of Health not only comes to our quarterly events, but our board actually has quarterly meetings with the Department of Health where we actually address with them concerns that we have regarding what's going on. And especially in the past you know, two to three years with COVID, we've been able to um, provide input and impact on those COVID regulations um, and just recently, that New Jersey changed those regulations again. And, and again, we're hearing probably in May of this year that the guidance is going to change yet again. And how do you notify your membership of all of these changes? So we actually have a weekly newsletter called The Pulse. And so the newsletter is lots of information, lots of links of information. And then in addition, if something particular comes out, like when the new executive order came out, then we'll also do a webinar in between mm -hmm. meetings if something is really timely and, and we feel it needs to happen quickly. Yeah, and while during the pandemic, I was on a couple times, you know, during some of your uh, your uh, your programs to talk about topics that were very timely at the time. You you are able to put things together very quickly. Yeah, we appreciate that. And so, talk about the membership dues. You know, how do you become a member? So we actually have a couple different levels of membership. So we have um, facility membership, which is an actual ambulatory surgery center, and and you can actually assign up to four people um, at your organization, all in 
included with no additional fee. Then we have what we call associate members, which are maybe individuals in the industry, like a consultant or somebody just starting out to join, um, and they're not currently employed, but they're interested in the industry. So we have a reduced membership for them. And then we have vendor members, which are you know our sales companies that provide lots of services to the surgery centers um, so that they can network and meet our members and talk about everything they provide. Now, uh, I actually want to talk about the vendors for a second because some of our listeners are vendors out yes. there. Um, and I, I will just state as as, a, as one of your vendors um, that uh, you treat vendors particularly well here. There's actually regular meetings of the vendors to discuss uh, various issues. Talk a little bit yeah. about how we you actually, work with your vendors. Yeah, we have a vendor committee that actually meets monthly and we talk to the vendors to see how best they can network with our centers. Anyone that's a member actually gets a roster of all of the other members so that with their emails, their phone numbers, their contact information, so you can reach out to them directly. And then they also get a list, uh, the vendors get a list of who's coming to the quarterly meeting, so they can kind of look at the list in advance and see who they want to talk to and also follow up with them after the meetings. Yeah, and that's one thing during the meetings. I know we're, we're going to talk with uh, uh, Bonnie in a few minutes about the uh, uh, about the vendors and about the, how the conferences work, but um, I think a very important part of membership in a state association, as well as the federal, as the national, but is is that contact that you have with other people? Because it's not just during conferences that you get to meet. As you said, you have a list of, of, the, of other members that yes. you could contact. Yeah. Yeah. How important I, is that? Oh, the, the list of other members to, to network. I think the most important thing that we offer is networking amongst the centers. Mm -hmm. Aside from gaining information, it's being able to network with other centers and understand what somebody else locally is doing, have someone to reach out to ask questions. So as a member, you have access to our website and our website has tons of resources, regulations, um, all sorts of articles on it. But then there's also the member list that you can look on and, and you can look up a surgery center by county, by location to see who's closest to you to be able to reach out to them. So I just interviewed Therese and we were talking about leadership. She did a whole presentation on leadership. Uh, and one thing we we're talking about is mentoring. Yes. And how valuable something like membership in your state membership in your state association is to be able to to meet people you know either in your own community and driving distance or other people that are maybe you know are not competitors for example and then just spending some time networking not just during these conferences but when something comes up uh, and that I think that's probably one of the biggest member one of the biggest me benefits of membership in an association like this yeah I think for myself professionally. Um, it was so important to my career to be able to meet other people, to network with them. And also um, it was an opportunity for myself to, to build a name in the state mm -hmm. industry in New Jersey. And so I really encourage other people that are looking to grow their career to become you know, more participative in the organization. We have committees that you can join. Mm -hmm. It's monthly phone calls. Um, if you're a board member, it's a monthly call and a meeting twice a year. We're actually holding board elections in June and we're looking for three more facility members um, so we're accepting applications right now. Mm -hmm. um, anyone can reach out to Kristen Stone for more uh, success communications, our management company, um, or myself to gain more information about becoming a board member. And we'll provide links to uh, to his, to the, the website for the organization oh, so great. you can do it. Talk a little bit about membership and how much it costs. So 
there is different tiers of pricing based on if you're an associate member, a facility member, or a vendor member. In addition, we actually offer, um, we do a membership drive each year that starts in August. And if you join during the membership drive, you actually get the rest of that year for free, along with your dues for the following year. And those membership applications with the dues amounts are on our website. And again, we'll provide links to all that information. So that's great, Meg. You know, obviously, uh, as I said, New Jersey has got an incredible association here. The benefits are um, certainly uh, incredible for the, uh, the 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 membership dues, and uh, it's a very active organization. And also, one point I'd make too is I uh, we've used your organization periodically when we have questions regarding the state regulations. There's always somebody there that can point us in the direction or even help us get in touch with somebody at the state if there's any questions. So, and your point about your how closely you work with the state. Uh, Department of Health is very important too. Yeah, our members actually can email us questions mm -hmm. um, and at info at njaasc.org. And we actually communicate those questions to the Department of Health on a weekly basis. And yeah. then we put the answers in the Pulse each Monday that comes out. Yeah, and the Pulse is a wonderful tool too on an ongoing basis. Thank you so much, Meg. I appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us, John. So I'd like to uh, thank everyone that helped me uh, put together this special episode and, uh, you know, especially the staff over at the New Jersey Association who arranged for the interviews and, and gave us a beautiful base for, the, uh, for the, the temporary studio that we set up there. So, again, thank you to the New Jersey Association. I look forward to, uh, to their next conference. Mm -hmm. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems trivalence, and ambulatory healthcare strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.